You are not going to go through your career as a first responder without it affecting you. It's simple as that. This job will take its toll on you, but it is a very rewarding profession, as you all know. But there are so many stories out there from first responders who have suffered and are suffering, and my next guest is going to talk about it. He is the best-selling author, Alan R. Cates, the author of Cop Shock, Surviving Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, and he says this, PTSD is a greater cop killer than all the guns ever fired at police officers, which is very true. The silent killer is our mind if we let it take over. Alan Cates, next on the CJ Evolution Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Patrick here, host and creator of the CJ Evolution Podcast. Thank you for listening. Without you, we would not be in existence. So thank you so much yet again for your support over the years. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. We're sure you're going to love the content and the guest. Long-time listener, welcome back. Thank you. A big shout-out to you, the criminal justice professional, first responder, whatever you were doing, wherever you were at. Thank you for doing it. And remember this, no matter what you hear out there against first responders, know this, and this is the truth. The vast majority of people out there support and love you, and they honor you. Keep up the great work, and please be safe. You know, when I talk to people who are suffering and in crisis, they often say, well, you know, can I wait after the holidays, or can I wait until this, or wait until that? Look, the only thing we have, folks, is time. If you are in crisis and you are suffering, the time to get help is now. Not after Christmas, not after New Year's, not after your kid's birthday. And I hate to say that those are all important dates, but all you have is time. You need to get help right now. So you need to step forward and ask for help now. There's going to be other holidays, other birthdays, but if you're not taking care of yourself first, nothing else is going to matter. FHE Health and Shatterproof is here for you. I went through the program. It saved my life. Call today. Reach out to me. All calls are confidential. 303-960-9819. We are here for you. Let us get you on the road to your recovery and wellness. What makes Shatterproof a very unique program is it's one of the only programs in the country that first responders can go to that is 100% all first responders. Everybody's in pretty bad shape when they get here. And then 30 days later, when you can see the transformation and the difference in people when they've had 30 days uh, of counseling, working with therapists, working with a psychiatrist, getting the neuro treatment, doing the breath therapy that's done here. The transformation that happens with the clients is really humbling to be able to work around and see because people are getting better here. And it just shows that there's a need for the first responder community to deal with behavioral health issues and take them seriously and offer treatment to people that may need help out there. They should be afforded the ability to come get help when they need help. It has gotten better, but we still have a long way to go. Hello, 
everybody. Welcome back. Very excited to have my next guest on the show. Very popular, doing so much for our first responders everywhere. Author of best-selling book, Cop Shock, and then trauma expert, Alan Cates. Welcome, sir. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. You know, I got the book. You sent it to me uh, a while ago. I read it. Amazing, amazing book. And like I told you before we started, sir, it's in, it's. I know it's been said a, many times. It's a survival book for first responders. What was the catalyst behind you writing this? I know it's going to sound strange, but I mean, and how does it really happen? I woke up one morning and I thought, you know, Vietnam veterans get PTSD. I wonder if cops do. Yeah. And that's kind of how it started. And I phoned the LAPD counseling unit and spoke to the head of the peer support department. And he said, absolutely, they get uh, PTSD. And um, he said, why don't you come down? I'll introduce you to some officers who have PTSD and you can talk to them and get a feel for what it means to law enforcement. So I did, I went down to LAPD and started interviewing. And from that point on, uh, I was reading book after book and looking at studies. And the thing that struck me was that there was no actual book or manual that described what uh, law enforcement first responders actually experienced. There are a lot of studies, but there was no book that kind of captured it. Mm -hmm. So that's why I came up with the idea of writing a book about PTSD and law enforcement, uh, which, of course, once I started into law enforcement, that included all first responders. And um, I thought, I mean, I'm a journalist by profession, and uh, I thought, well, that's interesting. If there is no book, uh, I'm going to work on this book. I've never written a book before. I've written a lot of, of news stories. And um, I thought, well, six months. I'll give it six months. <laughs> so, you know, as, as I say, it took six years. <laughs> yeah. So uh, a slight underestimate. But um, they're, they, the, the issues are so complex is that, you know, for example, let's talk about uh, divorce in law enforcement. I read studies that said that uh, the divorce rate for law enforcement is about the same as the general public. I read others that said, no, it was below the uh, what the general public experiences. But most of them said it was above. It could be 75%. It could be 90%. It's like, how do you make sense? Yeah, how do you, how do you know what's, what, yeah, how do you know what's true? So um, I would have to read at least a dozen different stu uh, studies to get some kind of consensus and understanding. And I talked to trauma experts and psychologists and uh, to get some kind of really good understanding of what all of this meant. Now, multiply that by every single issue that I describe in the book. And it's, um, it took six years. Yeah. And, 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 you, uh, and you mentioned divorce. Yeah, of course. Any job that is stressful, like law enforcement veterans, is susceptible. You know, I don't have to tell you, sir, is susceptible yeah. to high divorce. I mean, it's kind of common sense, but you know what to say about common sense? It's not so common, right? Yeah. And of course, it's a little different because most of us, you know, we, we go to work, we don't expect that someone's going to point a gun at us. Absolutely. You know, or we're putting our lives in danger. So it, that... Uh, makes a big difference. And and I like what you said, because when I was growing up, I'm, I'm 53, but I, when I was growing up, I remember my dad was a Vietnam veteran. And, you know, it, you, when you heard the term, you know, mental challenges or 
I don't even think we used PTSD back then. We, we, I'm sure it's always no. been around, but we didn't coin the term. Not until 1980. Yeah, 1980. That's and I remember that invented. Yeah, and sure. and but I, you always associated it with veterans, you know, with military veterans, and it never really got associated with law enforcement or first responders. But now it's on the forefront. So it's amazing how far we've come. And what else you said was very, um, very true. The complexities behind, you know, first responder trauma and and mental health challenges. I mean, it's just it's like unrolling, you know, it's unwrapping an, uh, an onion. There's so many different yeah. issues, yeah. divorce, financial issues, uh, yeah. relationship since, issues. Yeah. And since police and first responders started talking about and, and being diagnosed with PTSD, they ran into something else which is, okay, um, I need a PTSD pension because it's gone too far. I can't do this job anymore. And uh, then you ran up against uh, workman's comp, which is called different things in different states. But, uh, but basically, it's a government organization that is attached to the city, you know, and uh, they don't want to pay, period. And they weren't recognizing PTSD as being a legitimate reason for um, for a, a police officer, first responder to want to back out of the job. And the fact is they don't really want to, they don't want to, they feel forced to because of what they're experiencing on the job. And um, so I was involved in a court case where a police officer was in his vehicle, marked vehicle in uniform, a guy comes up to him with a shotgun, puts it through the window. Luckily, the police officer was faster. And he pulled out his gun and he shot him dead. As a result of that, he developed post-traumatic stress disorder. Because, you know, killing another human being yeah. is horrendous. So I was called in as an expert witness. And the lawyer for the equivalent of workman's comp said, why in the world should we compensate police officers because they're paid to kill people? <laughs> I said, um, uh, no, they're not. And uh, actually, if you look at the figures, I was prepared. Uh, all I did was go to the FBI website. They, the numbers don't how match many up. Times, yeah, how many times police officers actually shoot someone? And it was like something like 0.04%. Yes. And... Um, well, actually, what was also pretty funny was um, at the end of my discussion, because I just blew that lawyer away in terms of what she was saying. Um, the uh, She said, so now let me get this right. So you're being paid to say this, right? And I said, no, actually not. I'm a journalist. And she said, yeah, but you're being paid, right? And I said, well, no, I'm not. Jeez. She said, what do you mean you're not? Why? And this became an issue about why I'm not being paid. You know, to say what I'm saying, I said, because it affects my credibility, which, of Absolutely. course, totally destroyed her. Um, it affects my credibility and I wouldn't be able to speak honestly. Um, and so here I am and I'm giving you the facts and figures. Uh, and the judge said, I think we're done. And okay. she ruled in favor of the police officer. He got his complete pension. And uh, that was the first time in Arizona that a PTSD defense was allowed. Yeah, and it's, it's really surprised me. So, you know, I put it on my website. I put all the documents on my website that this is a win-win for police officers everywhere. 
And then um, within days, I get a notice from another lawyer who said, this was very interesting. And I'm trying to find out about your case, but there are no numbers. I can't find it. Can you send me the documents? I said, well, that's very weird. And he said, but he said, not really so weird. You know why? He said, because in Arizona, you're not allowed to publish these findings. Why? No one else is allowed. They're not supposed to see it so that they can use it against workman's comp. I said, that doesn't make any sense. And he said, no, but it's true. It's an actual law that says, and what you've got on your website, the fact that you posted is that's against the law. And you know what I said? All right, so let them sue me. Yeah. So I didn't take it off my yeah. website. Yeah. It, it, but it, it, I've it, had, over the years, I've had calls from numerous lawyers who have used that case in their own uh, discussions. Now it's a lot easier for police officers to use a PTSD defense in order to um, get what's owed to them. Yeah. And uh, we owe police officers a lot and, and other first responders. We owe them a great deal and uh, they shouldn't have to fight for what they are owed. No. And it reminds me of being down here in Arizona, sir. And of course you're here too, is what the, the background behind the inaction of the tiger act as, as, as you know, it, it it took this poor officer committing suicide until, you know, uh, the powers to be said, look, we need to do something. Uh, we need to enact this law, which basically mandates that agencies, if an officer is involved in a critical incident, see something uh, under the act that they're entitled to, I think, 36 sessions of counseling, if correct me if yeah. I'm wrong. But my point is, is that it, it, we're always so reactive reactive okay okay you know what hit the fan we have people off on themselves so we better do something instead of trying to catch people before they fall in the water and plucking them out downstream why don't we be more proactive on the front end yeah now i became good friends with uh, bill Janay, mm -hmm. who was the director of papa in new york yeah uh, police officers providing peer assistance i think i got that right and um, I met him when he was a trustee for the Patrolman's Benevolent Association. And he always wanted to create a group like this because he said there are so many officers who are committing suicide and um, we seem, it seems like we can't stop it. Mm -hmm. So he told me about a meeting he had with uh, the New York Police Department because they are co quite concerned about so many suicides. And... Um, Bill said to them, well, look, the problem is that you, that the officers will go, will see your psychiatrist, but everything they say is reported to the administration and they lose their jobs. Yeah. So I said, if, uh, if they can be guaranteed confidence, confidentiality, then um, you're going to see a, a severe decline in suicides and they will go to see the, basically the company, the department's um, mental health people. And they said, we can't do that. So Bill said, how about if we create our own organization and you put money into us? All the money that you put into your psychiatrist, you give to us, we'll create our own organization. And you know what they said? Yes. So they did. They created Papa. Yeah. And uh, Bill told me, he said, in the first year, they saved the lives of 35 officers. It was pretty astounding yeah. what, what they do in New York because of this peer support. And of course, now there's peer support all over the country. When I first re started researching cop shock, there was very little peer support. And um, I was asked to speak at numerous conferences. 
And of course, that was always the, the bell that I was ringing. You have to have peer support. And uh, the biggest problem was with the smaller departments, they couldn't afford it. And yeah. I told them, you can't afford not to. You must have peer support for all the officers and give them confidentiality. Now, do you think, Alan, that in peer supports are great. I'm a big advocate of them. Do you think there's still a reluctance with some officers, you know, even going to a peer support uh, team inside the department? You know, sometimes they're inside, sometimes they're out. Do you think there's still a reluctance for people, you know, members of an agency to say, I'm going to go talk to my peer support for, because of fear of repercussions? Like you said, it's going to get back to admin. I was in a meeting um, a couple of weeks ago here in Arizona and yeah. a bunch of peer support members there, the peer support teams. And I was one of these members got up and spoke and said one of their people on their peer support team was actually an IA internal affairs You're kidding. Uh, commander. And I'm thinking. Why in the hell, if I'm a member of that organization and, I, and, and, you know, I guess work with what you have, but if I'm struggling, why am I going to go? Because I'm going to, it doesn't matter how you spin it and how you try to sugarcoat it. You're part of IA. And I'm afraid because yeah. now my job's at risk. You know what I mean? Do you yeah. think there's still a problem with that? Uh, there appears to be, because I've talked to officers. I mean, Think in terms of who you are as a person, the job that you do, and you feel very skilled, and something really horrific happens. You come on a scene, and there's a dead baby in the sink, and his brains have been bashed out. I mean, that is a horrific thing, but it's in cop shock. This happened, yeah. and this uh, police officer talked about it and the effect that it had on him. Um, so you see horrible things like that, or you are engaged in a gunfight, and, and, and you're wounded. And uh, there comes a point where suddenly all your human feelings are coming out and you're told, hey, you don't have any. You're, you're a cop. You get out there, you know, you don't get stress, you give stress. But uh, and then they realize, hey, I'm human. But to go to to go over that, that line and say, OK, now I'm going to go get help. Uh, that's been a real hard one for for police officers and uh, other first responders. Uh, we need to build that into um, the police academy. When they're Absolutely. in there, they have to be told, you know, one day you are going to need help. It's inevitable. And uh, that's nothing to be afraid of. You know, we just do it. We provide it. You just go to a peer support. You just call them up. It's no big deal. And uh, that has to, they, we have to give them permission. We have to give everybody who is a first responder permission to seek help. And that help is available. So it's not a big deal. And, and I think some departments are better at that. Alan, you talk to a ton of people. I think some departments are better fostering that type of environment. The culture in other departments are horrible at it. You know, you get some of these people that just talk the talk, you know, or, you know, without walking the walk. And again, other agencies are pretty good at it. I mean, it sounds like NYPD took the advice and said, yeah, you're right. Let's do this for fear of, you know, confidentiality getting out. But there's so many agencies out there that I think just just say all the right things, but yet they don't do anything about, you know, solving the problem or helping mitigate it. Yeah. Um, I can tell you a, a funny story, but it really describes everything that we've just uh, discussed. Uh, when I was researching cop shocks, that goes back, you know, the, the first edition came out uh, like 20 years ago. And the second edition, you know, uh, sometime after that, 
But when I went to New York and I met with the peer support unit that they had at the time, and uh, they were struggling, they were having a lot of problems. And I, I had phoned them and said, look, I wanna come down and talk to some of your police officers um, uh, who have been diagnosed with PTSD. And um, unlike other departments, the reaction was, first they laughed and they said, you're a journalist and you want to do this? I said, yeah, I said, we don't like journalists. I said, I know. Um, and they said, okay, you come down. I mean, I was living in Los Angeles. You know, you, you come here, we'll talk about it. So I said, okay. So I got on a plane, I went to LA and, uh, sorry, to New York. And um, I arrived, uh, we were to go to lunch, lunch to a Chinese restaurant. I remember the details. And uh, as we were walking, there were about uh, five of us and we were, we were walking out of uh, John Jay College to go to this restaurant. And a lieutenant was walking by and she asked where we're going and said, well, can I join you? So she joined us and we got there and, and um, we order our food at the restaurant. I'm about to open my mouth and say, this is why I have flown 3,000 miles <laughs> to talk to you guys. And the cop beside me leans in and he says, say nothing. She's a boss. And I thought, oh, now I understand what I've walked into here. You know, so I talked about my flight. I talked about the chocolate that was left on my pillow at the hotel. You know, I, they looked at me like I had lost my mind, you know. So anyway, I mean, I, I she was a very fine officer, but yeah. still that was the, the round. So we, afterwards, we went back to the office and uh, we got to the office. I said, look, you must think I'm totally insane. But I was, Joe here said, say nothing because uh, she's a boss so i you know you heard the drivel that i said and they all shook their heads yeah you did the right thing <laughs> and they said right away it's like okay you're one of us you know and <laughs> they started picking up the phone they were calling police officers diagnosed with ptsd and, and uh, they set up all the interviews the patrolman's benevolent association gave me an office because they said no one's going to go to the department to talk to you yeah. So they'll, but they'll come to the, you know, here and they'll, they'll, they'll talk to you. And um, I was going to be there for three days. I was there for two weeks. And every day I was interviewing officers. They were so forthcoming. The things that they told me, as you saw in my book, yes. you know, it's not, not whitewash. They talk about taking drugs and stealing money and doing horrible things because they're in the throes of PTSD. Not that that's an excuse, but that's the reality of it. Yeah. It makes you do really crazy things. And uh, they talk about it. And in the in the book, uh, as you recall, um, I show how they get to the depths of despair. Yeah. And most of them in the book uh, want to kill themselves. And one actually does, which was a horrific thing. Yeah. And um, But they dig their way out and they show how they survived, what they did, and and mostly what who in peer support that they talked to. Yeah. I think the hardest thing for me, Alan, was was just um doing a lot of self-reflection, you know, going inside of myself saying and putting my ego aside and putting my uh you know fear mostly aside and saying, I need some help. It's you can go one or two ways. I can off myself or I can pick up the phone and and ask for help. And that's what I ultimately did, obviously. 
But I think that's the biggest challenge with people, right? I mean, this, yeah. in my opinion, their fear, their their ego, I think is one of the biggest things. I'm always the protector. I have to go out there and save people. And what are people going to think of me if I'm the one asking for help? What are people going to say about me? And I got to a point, sir, where I was like, I don't give a damn what people say about me. This is for me. You know, this is yeah. for my mental health, my well-being. And I'm going to be better for it. And I am. Yeah. Um, let me tell you about one of the stories in Cop Shock. Uh, by the way, first of all, right after the book came out, I was not satisfied. I was not happy because it's like, well, what kind of impact is it having? And then I got a phone call from a police officer. Tremendous impact. The first thing he said, <laughs> yeah, he said, he said, you saved my life. Yeah. He said, I read your book and I realized one thing. I'm normal. Absolutely. Because uh, police believe they're taught that violence is normal and that their feelings about it, that's abnormal, which of course it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. And they have to recognize that they are human and no matter what their training is, they will react as a human being. And they're trained not to do it there during the, the during at the crime scene, but later they are going to react and they need people uh, around them, people they can talk to, uh, people they have already talked to in the past and say, one day I'm going to call you because I'm going to need some help. And all I want you to do is listen. And uh, that's really important. That's the most important thing I found with police officers. If they can talk about their experiences, because, you know, cops don't talk. No. If they can talk <laughs> about their experiences and feel honored, yeah, and feel honored by the other person who is there and not and someone who is not judgmental, um, is not going to judge them, then that's going to go a long way. Anyway, I was going to tell you about a police officer named Jonathan Figueroa, who is one of the stories in uh, Cop mm -hmm. Shock. And um, he arrived just after 9-11, just after the, the buildings came down. And he worked on the pile for the 98 days. And it was really having an effect with him. He was a canine officer. And uh, he even asked, halfway through, he asked to be relieved. He wanted to do something else because it was making him crazy. Um, but uh, they couldn't afford to let anybody go. So he was there, and um, and so then he continued on with his normal activities. Five years later, first of all, he was not reacting. He was not having any difficulties with PTSD or anything. Five years later, a friend of his, a police officer, was hurt in a car accident. He went to see him, and he said he saw him, and he suddenly started to shake. His hands were shaking. Um, it's like suddenly something happened to him. He couldn't understand it. And this went on for days and weeks and he started drinking, which he never did before. And finally, he went to his locker uh, at the station and he took out his gun and he put it to his head. And he said, what am I doing? He said, I just can't cope with this. He was, he was stuttering, which he had never done before. So he went to his sergeant and he told the sergeant, what had happened to him, what's been going on. And the sergeant picked up the phone and he called Papa. He called, called one of the peer support officers at Papa. And he said, I want you to go see this guy. You tell him everything that's going on with you. And he did. And um, the officer found him um, a psychologist that was outside the department. So it wouldn't be reported, it was confidential. And he was diagnosed with PTSD. Five years later, because there is delayed PTSD, and um, uh, he had some therapy, and he went back on the job. Yeah. 
Yeah, and he's, it's, it's still there today. And um, but that's that's a good news story. It went pretty far, but it shows you even five years later this can happen. So it can happen immediately. It can happen over time. And that it could can happen from one incident. It can be one incident or it can be an accumulation of incidents. And I'm thinking, and I read about the story and I'm thinking that could have easily gone the other way, Alan, where you got some pe yeah. person, he goes and asks for help and they say, suck it up. It's part of your job. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, it's, exactly right. yeah, it's, it's, uh, but there's so many, you know, for, for all the, the depressing and horrible stories about first responders. There's a lot of success stories out there about people. Yes, there first are first responders that have hit the rock bottom in a in a pit, whatever you want to call. And then they sought treatment and they opened up their mouth and they reached out for help. And now they're in recovery still because I don't think recovery ever ends. I mean, I'm in recovery from from my treatment, and it's it's not a, there's no end date to that. In my opinion, you have to keep up with it. But there's so many stories out there that first responders share to inspire other first responders to come forward. And I think that's the beauty of the age we live in right now with technology and all this other stuff. One of the beauties is now we have the opportunity to connect more than ever and share stories and help people that need help like yourself and your book and what you're doing right now. So in that regard, I think we're living in some pretty amazing times. I think we have a lot, a long way to go in terms of officer wellness and first responder wellness, but we're on the right track, I believe. Yeah, I think so. I've been told that um, that my book set things in motion. Absolutely. Because there hadn't been anything like it uh, written before. And, and of course, I didn't realize the scope of, of the issues involved when I started on the project. Um, but uh, I did realize that uh, police officers, first responders, everything is very underreported. You never hear about this in the news. At that oh. time, 20 years ago, you didn't. Um, well, I, I, you, you still I don't hear a lot about it in the news, Alan. I mean, I, I mean, you don't hear a lot about this, you know, first responder wellness and mental health and addiction problems and stuff like that. You don't see a lot of it. And I wonder why yeah. that is. Maybe it's not glamorous or shocking. I, I don't know. I think part of it, too, is the acceptance of, of civilians, people who are not in, who are not first responders. They don't want to believe that first responders are vulnerable, just as vulnerable as, as other human beings. And uh, it's it's hard. I mean, so I'm a civilian. It's hard for me to accept that my heroes, and I've always idolized uh, police officers. Um, it, I find it hard to believe that they could be so vulnerable. They're supposed to be, you know, superheroes. But, you know, there's no such thing. No. They are doing a job, and it's oh no, I take that back. They're not doing a job. It is their calling, and I've been corrected many times by police officers who said, mm -hmm. "No, this is my life. This is my calling." Yeah, and uh, in that sense, they're almost like priests that they feel called to do this job. It's an important job, and we need them as civilians. We need uh, police officers, firefighters, uh, paramedics. Um, we rely on you. The one thing that that bothers me a lot when I hear it is, well, this is what first responders, this is what cops and firemen and other first responders, this is what they signed up for. Yeah. This is what they signed up for, to get shot at, see death, trauma. That's like telling an NFL star when they get hurt and they have a career-ending uh, injury or, or whatever, well, this is what they signed up for. 
No, they didn't sign up to get hurt. They got on, they got on there to play and excel at their sport. Same with police officers and first responders. Like you said, sir, this is their calling. They didn't sign up to have PTSD and deal with addiction issues and things like that. Marital problems, financial issues, uh, all those things because they're suffering mentally. So it bothers me when people say that because not, that's not the reason. That's not why I signed up for it. But yeah, like exactly. you said, you get, you get damaged. You will get damaged in this job eventually. And that was the, that was the attitude of that lawyer in that court case that I was involved in. You know, I it's can't, like, I can't. they signed up for it. So why, why should we compensate them just because they're doing their job? Well, and, and that lawyer's telling you, you know, they're paid to kill people. What a, what a great marketing strategy. Come work for this oh. PD. We pay you to kill people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just yeah. idiot. Yeah, who knew, right? And the reality is, like you said, the numbers do not uh, look at DOJ and all these other numbers. How many times do cop, most cops, the majority of police officers out there, you know this, Alan, never even draw their weapon in the line of duty. That's right. That's right. Never even draw their weapon. But yet we take a couple incidences. And that's another thing I think contributes. And I'd like to hear your theory about this. Alan is contributes now more than ever to PTSD among first responders is when I was a young cop, we didn't have social media. We didn't have all this other stuff that was going on where people were ridiculing and we didn't have politicians from every side of the aisle, you know, bad mouthing police officers. So I think it's like, it's coming at first responders, not just cops, fire, EMS corrections from every angle now. Yeah. I mean, I'm a part of the media and I understand what goes on with the media. They want the sensational story. Yeah. And of course, if there is a, um, a shooting, if there is a, a killing by a cop, I mean, the George Floyd thing comes to mind, um, those are going to be in the news for days and weeks, and they want to get as much mileage out of it as possible. I'm not saying that it was right what happened with uh, uh, George Floyd. Yeah. Um, I watched that whole thing, and I wept through the whole thing. Yeah. Because I also knew... I wept for the, not just for him, but for those officers who were there because they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. And this is going to affect officers everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. I remember so, Rodney, I remember Rodney King. You remember how long yeah. that was? I remember I was a young officer and that still resonates. Yeah. Today. So those, it doesn't matter what uniform you're wearing, whether you're Chicago PD, Detroit, NYPD, people see uniform and they say, oh, sometimes you're one of them. Yeah. Because of I interviewed I interviewed two of the officers involved in the Rodney King affair, uh, Stacy Kuhn, who was the sergeant involved, and uh, it was a fascinating interview and, and discussion because he gave me his point of view of what went down. And this is, of course, what people, civilians do not see. They don't see what goes on behind the scenes. They don't have a grasp of the training that these cops have had and what they're supposed to do. So when he described everything that happened in detail uh, based on his training and what he he thought he was doing, you can see it makes sense. But in the general scope of things, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And the department would not stand behind their own policies. That was the thing that hurt him the most. And that's usually the thing that hurts most police officers when they discover that the, the biggest problem is the department itself. Yeah. In my research, I was shocked at that. That was the thing that really shocked me. The department does not stand up. 
Yeah. And I, I hear the same thing from officers when I talk to a lot of cops like you do is they're, they're, the biggest complaint that they have is the command staff or the department municipality won't, won't get their back. And that's the one thing that they're worried about, especially now in this litigious society we live in. Uh, and I'm not saying all departments are like that, but yeah. uh, some of them are. And that's a big fear among officers. Yeah. As one officer said to me, he says, I can spot the bad guy real easy, but I can't see the guy shoving the knife in my back. Oh, wow. I like that. Yeah, that's what he said. Wow. Wow. Now, where do you think, Alan, I mean, I know you're an expert in trauma. Where do you think we're, do you think we're doing a good job when it, and it comes to treatment? You know, okay. An officer uh, comes forward or a first responder comes forward. They ask for help. They're on that track. They're on that patient track. Do you think we're, we're doing a good enough job as far as treating officers, you know, with, with PTSD and mental health and addiction challenges? We're still in the, the infant stage. We think that we progress so much and we have, but we're still uh, at the beginning of it. I know it seems like a lot of years have passed since I first started researching this, but, um, you know, they, they've invented uh, therapies that have been great for cops like EMDR, which I'm sure you've heard of. Yeah. Uh, which uh, a lot of police officers have benefited from. But there are kind of two levels. First of all, there's the, in quotes, the level of treatment that is designed to get the police officer, the first responder, back on the job. It doesn't take very long. Um, it may take a day, a week, a month. Uh, and then there are the long-term problems. That's the, the other level, where psychologists are, are usually involved, or psychiatrists, but usually psychologists. And uh, that can take a lot more time. And sometimes the, the first responder said, you know, um, maybe it's time that I find something else to do. Because I, I you know, if, if I go back to the scene where something horrible has happened, I can't, I just can't do it. Mm. I find myself shaking or whatever, you know. So you can have as much therapy as you want, but sometimes you just got to walk away. Yeah, and find something else. But in, I think, from what I've seen, in most cases, uh, treatment is effective. But we're still in the infant stage. We're uh, we're just beginning, and they're trying all kinds of new treatments. They're even oh, trying ketamine, um, um, ketamine, all kinds of stuff. Oh yeah, ketamine and um, uh, some very strange drugs. For sure, besides <laughs> ketamine, which I, drugs that were you know ta taboo. Very illegal. I remember when I was in treatment, you know, and, and I, I, cause you're right. Like FHE and shatterproof. I went through like neurostimulation. Amazing. They're doing a lot with the brain down there. But I remember first hearing ketamine and I was like, wait a minute. Isn't that like a horse tranquilizer? I remember hooking people up on the street that had special K is what we called it on the street, you know? And, but now we're finding, you know, with obviously studies and, and research that some of these drugs that were once considered taboo actually help mitigate you yeah. know like ptsd and things like that yeah let's talk about ketamine for just a second here because i'm um, i also work as a, as a ghostwriter i was ghostwriting a book for a woman who uh has ptsd and uh, she had a very sick child in the hospital this is where her ptsd came from and that child was given ketamine um and uh, i did research into the drug and apparently for decades, that's been, that is the drug of choice for children in the hospital, you know, who need to be sedated or to be operated on, and it's very good for children. So it, I mean that that but it's but it's because I've heard that ketamine is a horse drug. Yeah, but it's amazing how we kind of 
we look at the stigma, you know, stigmatize something yeah. and, and say, wow, this can have any benefits. But then we get to a point where we start trying it on people who are suffering. And then we figure out, wow, this actually does have some benefits. <laughs> well, I mean, you remember, yeah. you may take marijuana. I'm not an advocate for marijuana, but take marijuana. I mean, you know, when I was a young, it was, it was demonized. Now we're actually finding, you know, obviously medicinal purposes for it. But, you yeah. know, so we, as time goes on, we, and maybe in the future, we'll, we'll realize that more and more of these things that were once considered, oh, we can't do that, are going to become pretty mainstream. Yeah, we just have to keep an open mind. And sometimes it's hard because I know that they've been testing ecstasy, for example. Yes. And it's like, what? you're kidding me. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, but they have been tested and it's been quite effective. But it's, yeah. you know, it's monitored by clinicians and uh, they, they know what kind of doses to give. Absolutely. So I don't think anybody under these circumstances is having a good time. Yes. Alan Cates, if people want to reach out to you, sir, what's the best way that they can contact you? Maybe book you for a speech, have you come and visit a facility, wink, wink. Oh, I, I really want <laughs> and, to come and, see and, the facility. Yeah. And where to get uh, Cop Shock? Yeah, they can go to my, my website, which is copshock.com, C-O-P-S-H-O-C-K, one word. And uh, all the information is there about how to contact me. And it talks about, I mean, if someone's interested in me speaking at a, uh, giving a seminar or talking at a conference, um, I talk about the, the different conferences I've already talked at. Um, and um, there's a lot of information on the website about PTSD and first responders. Thank you, so sir. I appreciate it. Is there any final words for the listeners out there who might be struggling? You'll find your way through. The most important thing is, first of all, is to know you are normal. That what you are experiencing happens to everybody in the world. Absolutely. And that first responders are told that, no, you've got everything under control. But as humans, we have to just go with it. If stuff happens and um, you will get better. And when I first started researching uh, PTSD, uh, I heard from psychologists, I read in books that uh, you cannot cure PTSD. And since then, with new therapies, it's totally changed. Now, yes, you can cure it. You can cure PTSD. You can manage it and you can cure it. Absolutely. Those are my final words. I appreciate it, Alan. Thank you so much, sir. I hope to get together with you soon, by, uh, soon buy you some coffee. We both live in Arizona. Yeah, it's, it's, it's astounding. We're probably like a block away from each other. We didn't even realize it. Yeah, we didn't even realize it. Alan Cates, thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. I'd love to have you back on in the future. Such a great show with Alan. If you love the audio of this podcast, check out the video at CJ Evolution Podcast YouTube channel. The links are in the show notes. Go out there. Have a great day. Until next time.